Hi, and welcome to the MHDD Crossroads podcast, where we explore the intersection of mental health and developmental disabilities. This week, our host, Jeff Sheen, interviewed Emma Schaus-Garten, a sibling advocate from Tennessee. We hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Emma Schaus-Garten, the Public Information Specialist for the Tennessee Council on Developmental Disabilities. Emma also leads the Tennessee Adult Brothers and Sisters, or TAVS, statewide sibling support network, and is the co-chair of the Chapter Development Committee for the National Sibling Leadership Network, all of which we'll talk about in our conversation today. Emma, we're delighted to have you here. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. We would love to hear just a little bit about your background and why it is you do the things that you do. I did uh, give a little bit of an intro on some things, but yeah, tell us a little bit about who you are and why you do what you do. Absolutely. Um, well, so I live in Nashville, Tennessee, and I, um, in college, I studied social work and sociology. I had kind of a vague idea. I just wanted to be in some sort of helping profession, and uh, in college at, at Belmont here in Nashville, I really fell in love with the public policy social work side of things, learning how um, government and public policy and systems had such a direct impact on uh, the lives of of people. And um, from a personal perspective, I uh, grew up with two younger brothers who are twins, and they're six, almost seven years younger than me. Um, So right now, they're 24, almost 25, and I'm 31. And one of them, uh, one of the twins, Evan, has autism and um, some pretty significant uh, communication and behavioral support needs. Um, And so from a a very young age, I uh, grew up, um, you know, kind of in a traditional older sister, sibling of a person with a disability role in that I was providing a lot of support in peer modeling in Evan's, you know, therapy sessions and um, a lot of a lot of caregiving to help my parents. And I also saw my parents get super involved in the disability advocacy community and got to see them um, really benefit from finding support from other families and parents of kids with disabilities. And um, so all that to say when I was looking for, you know, what what a job might look like for me out of school. I had um, done a a really wonderful public policy internship at the Tennessee Council on Developmental Disabilities during my last year of school and was just fascinated at how complicated the disability service system can be and how agencies like the council try to help families understand exactly how to navigate those complicated systems and how to speak up for their loved ones with their, with disabilities and train people with disabilities how to speak up for themselves. And I really fell in love with that work. And so, um, yes, now eight nine years later, um, I uh, have have really fell in love with the the disability justice rights advocacy movement. Um, itself far beyond just, you know, how um, my brother and, and our family is impacted. 
Yeah, and I really appreciate you sharing some of your background. I know the more people we interview, everybody has some kind of personal connection, typically mm -hmm. to to be working in this field one way or the other. And and certainly, you know, I mentioned in the intro that we have interviewed also your mother, Janet Schaus. And that's right. Um, so and that was a delightful opportunity to talk to her about her experiences. So now to be able to talk to you, there's a lot I want to kind of discuss. You you do a lot of different things. You wear a lot <laughs> of different hats. Mm -hmm. um, I'm excited that you're so passionate about public policy. Uh, that's one of the areas of social work that, that really got me interested in things. I also have a younger sibling with disabilities and, mm -hmm. and seeing how the system did and did not work in mm -hmm. different parts of, of their lives was uh, certainly a big part of why I do what I do. And like you said, it's grown well beyond what my experience with, with my sibling was into a much broader understanding of the, the disability field in, in, the, in general. So I'm excited to talk to you about some of those things. And I should say that when we were talking about setting up this podcast, you did send us a couple of lovely articles mm -hmm. and we'll have those in our show notes. One of them, you, you for the council, the DD Council Magazine, you have a, a, a really nice piece about your experience with your brother, Evan, and that you had his permission to talk about some of his story and things like that. So we'll definitely have that linked because folks should really uh, take a look at that article. And then at some point today, we'll talk a little bit about the other article, which is much more recent. And that was in uh, an interview that Psychology Today, I believe, that mm -hmm. talks a little bit about the sibling perspective and the current COVID pandemic. Um, so we, we can't pretend that that's not going on. It's really, <laughs> I'm in my basement recording this and you're at your house and mm -hmm. both of us would probably be in the office at this point in our day. Yes. And you know, we're kind of entering our fourth month of um, some pretty serious self-isolation and, and quarantine for a lot of us. So we'll, we'll weave that into the conversation too. Um, but what I'd really love to talk to you about first is I'd love to hear about your work with the Sibling Leadership Network and with the TABS and kind of what that is all about. For those of our listeners who have never heard of the Sibling Leadership Network, can you just give us a rundown of what what's the uh, kind of purpose of that particular organization, how you're involved, and, and how that might be a resource for people that are listening. Absolutely. Um, so the Sibling Leadership Network is um, a, a national network really aimed at providing siblings of people with disabilities across the lifespan, whatever information or peer support or um, encouragement that they need um, no matter where they are in, in their sibling relationship. Um, one of the things that I really appreciate and, and respect about the SLN is um, how much they appreciate kind of the diversity of sibling experiences and how they, they try to, to reach out and provide support to the folks who are doing, you know, day-to-day -day caregiving of siblings with um, significant needs and you know living with their siblings all the way to folks who may be estranged from their siblings or their siblings have passed away and to really respect kind of no matter what our um, experiences have been or our perspectives are about um, the role that that we have in in providing support or, or care to our um, brother or sister with a disability that the SLN is there to kind of meet folks where they're at um, so they they do some um, public policy advocacy. For example, a, a major focus of the SLN for many years is 
um, or has been expanding FMLA, the Family Medical Leave Act, um, to include siblings who are providing care to their brothers or sisters with disabilities. There are some, uh, some situations where siblings are able to benefit from that, but many, many siblings would be able to, um, would be able to, to benefit if some of the definitions in that law were expanded. Um, the SLN does um, a lot, they do um, biannual national conferences where siblings from across the United States and more recently even from outside the US come together to talk about research, um, about the impact of having a brother or sister with a disability, um, the impact that that has across uh, someone's lifespan and the supports that um, brothers or sisters with disabilities um, or siblings of people with disabilities need. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's just a really, so, so often the disability advocacy movement has, has really centered on the voices of parents of kids with disabilities and um, more and more often, wonderfully, also centered the voices of the people with disabilities themselves. Um, but as the SLN often talks about, um, for most of us, our sibling relationships, our relationships with our brothers or sisters are the longest relationships any of us will ever have, longer than um, our relationships with our parents or our kids or our partners. Um, so I think we're a really important um, voice to have at the table when talking about um, what support for families looks like, how to support our brothers and sisters in speaking up for themselves and, um, and disability policy and how it impacts people. Yeah, thank you so much for that that general overview of the SLN. I think, you know, as a sibling myself, yeah, that idea of this is a, a really long-term relationship, right? This, I, I, I knew my sibling well before I met my partner and had a family of my own. Uh, my father's already passed, my mother's getting older. And so I will likely be in my sibling's life well past when my parents are both passed. And, and that, and that changes, that relationship changes throughout the years, right? There's been periods of, uh, more intense caregiving than not, and then more distance. And, and there's the whole representative payee issue. And, mm -hmm. and, and in some situations, uh, maybe medical or financial guardianship or supportive decision-making roles or things like that. And it is a very, um, rich relationship and it can be a very complicated and, and a very stressful relationship at times. Absolutely. One, one major focus area, kind of a, a thread through most of what the SLN does, is to support siblings in having conversations about future planning uh, with their brothers or sisters, and in far too many cases, supporting siblings taking on those additional support roles if, if mom and dad have passed away and haven't put those, um, those supports in place. Um, far too often, um, parents of, of older adults with disabilities may be reluctant to have those conversations about what the future will look like after they're gone. And siblings um, may or may not, you know, not all siblings of folks with disabilities are like you and me and have jumped straight into the, the disability policy world. A lot of folks find themselves, you know, in, in their um, middle age or older adult years having to all of a sudden learn all of this complicated, you know, Medicaid waiver, social security, um, uh, healthcare stuff that their parents had a lifetime to learn. Um, and if, if families don't have those 
tough conversations about, you know, the next phase of life for their family member with a disability, um, it can really cause a, a disruption to a lot of things. Yeah, and that's, I'm thinking, uh, as folks might be listening and want to, want to learn more, what, what's the best way for anybody to connect with the SLN? Absolutely. So, um, I think their, their URL is just siblingleadership.org, but if you um, join that network, it, anyone is welcome. It's not just for siblings, it's for uh, sibling supporters who can be anyone as well, and you'll be added to an email mailing list um, where uh, research and resources and all sorts of things um, will, will be sent out. And then if you are a brother or sister of someone with a disability, I would encourage you to join the closed uh, face, Facebook group called SibNet. It's run jointly by, um, by the SLN and the Sibling Support Project, which was created by Don Meyer back in the 80s, and they help lead, um, they, they help promote the spread of Sib Shops, which are events for younger siblings of kids with disabilities um, to kind of early on get that the benefits of, of that peer support. Um, so it's, so SIPNET um, is a huge international community of, um, of siblings and that's, it's a really, um, I think, important resource um, and, and place for um, siblings to, you know, post about those really complex service system questions, to post about family frustrations, to post the joys that we experience as brothers and sisters of, folks with disabilities and celebrate those milestones and and really just um, it's a great uh, resource for for finding support from your peers. That's great. That was one thing I was going to ask you about because, you know, this is a podcast where we do explore the intersection of mental health and disability and, you know, some of the caregiving issues can create uh, additional stress on siblings and can impact their mental health. And, and that was my question is, so there is a place to go connect with more of a support group kind of um, network through this SLN? Absolutely. Um, I'll, I'll always plug the, the biannual SLN conference, but yeah, in terms of um, as a resource for getting that, that person-to-person -person peer support. But um, yeah, if folks are looking for, um, for, for support around mental health, uh, needs or, or caregiving um, stress or, or that sort of thing, I would definitely recommend connecting to a SIPnet on Facebook. And then I may be wrong, but I want to say about 25 states currently have uh, state chapters of uh, the Sibling Leadership Network. So here in Tennessee, I help lead um, TABS, Tennessee Adult Brothers and Sisters. Um, and one thing that I like uh, is about the SLN um, and this network is that each state um, kind of picks its own approach to what they want to focus on in terms of supporting siblings. Some state chapters focus a lot on, you know, growing sib shops and, and opportunities for younger kids. Some states do like um, advocacy camps where, you know, teens with and without or teens with disabilities and their brothers or sisters go to um, camp together to learn different school. Uh, skills for life after high school and adulthood. Um, in Tennessee, TABS does a lot of uh, conferences and workshops based on um, kind of helping, helping folks navigate the service system and learning all of this, um, 
these logistics that people need to know, like the financial planning and future planning and uh, how to navigate Tennessee's service system. Um, something I'm excited about is I'm, I'm hoping that in the coming um, years we can uh, focus more on kind of that mental health, interpersonal, family dynamics, relationships aspect of things. Um, for example, we're, we're hosting um, a virtual Zoom tabs siblings meeting in July that's going to feature a speaker to talk about having, you know, tough conversations with families and how to um, resolve conflict when, you know, parents or the person with a disability or the siblings or all of the above may not see eye to eye on on various things. And so, um, yeah, if you, I, I would encourage siblings um, to, to check out the SLN website and see if your state has um, a chapter, and if so, get involved. There are contacts listed for all of the chapters uh, on the website. And I'm assuming if they find that their state doesn't have a chapter as co-chair of chapter development. <laughs> well, I want to talk to you. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> That's right. Uh, basically, um, all, all it takes to, to start a chapter, you know, you don't have to commit to developing a nonprofit or, or finding a board of directors or anything. Really all it, all we ask is that you have at least three siblings who are um, in your state who are willing to participate and, and be involved in developing uh, resources or, or events or support opportunities um, and that they're willing to be committed for, I think, six months at least or something. So it's, um, it's free and easy and we will help you um, if you're interested. Yeah, no, that sounds great. And I appreciate you kind of talking a little bit about that process. So it's not as daunting as having to have a background in nonprofit and, and not all that. At all. <laughs> Can you give me a sense of just talking about tabs? Uh, how, how big is the network there in Tennessee? How many people kind of regularly participate? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and it's kind of shifted over the years. So um, the, the council where I work and Vanderbilt Kennedy Center is uh, University Center for Excellence in Developmental Disabilities started um, kind of uh, gathering siblings to, to create tabs maybe in 2006 or so, 2006, 2007. And for a while, there's a paid staff member who, whose sole job was to really coordinate both sib shops and, and tabs activities. Um, and so up through um, up through maybe 2013 or so, there were annual conferences that attracted about 60 to 70 folks, um, which was great. We, in, in the more recent years, we've tried to kind of mix up um, the types of opportunities that we're offering more local social get-togethers or regional workshops or online trainings since we had just heard from, you know, a lot of folks that they, um, that they can't get away to Nashville for a weekend. Um, I, I often point out um, the folks when talking about siblings um, were often uh, referred to as the sandwich generation, which means we may be at any given point be providing support or care to three different generations, our own kids, our brothers and sisters with disabilities and aging parents or in-laws. Um, so there were a lot of people I think um, who who weren't able to to do um, you know weekend conferences? Um, so now I would say 
probably a couple dozen siblings remain pretty actively involved in attending events or um, helping to coordinate and plan the events. I would love to grow that. Um, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, I very much relate to the sandwich generation. That was always mm -hmm. a concept I was aware of from my social work background, but then mm -hmm. in the last several years to, to actually live that and, <laughs> and you know, have elementary school age children at home and aging parents uh, with different things happening there. And then mm -hmm. uh, a sibling that every once in a while kind of hits a rough patch and needs a lot of support to get through that. So yeah, I can imagine trying to get away to a weekend conference <laughs> is kind of a, a non-starter, but the, the yeah. silver lining of kind of the world we're living in right now with everything moving online is hopefully there's still that real sense of connection that people can can cultivate you know, by participating Absolutely. online and accessing resources that way. Yeah, and and um, we found this true to be, or we've found this to be true in Tennessee and tabs, and I've heard from other sibling chapters that that now that we're offering more things, um, more get-togethers virtually, we're attracting a lot of new folks, new faces that that we hadn't seen. So I think, yeah, silver lining for sure. Yeah, it's kind of interesting how uh, kind of time and distance can be mitigated a little bit by the online. You you do certainly lose some of that face-to-face -face that so mm -hmm. many of us really value. Um, but as far as making do with what we have, it's it's not bad. And we, we have found in some of the groups that I'm involved with is members that we kind of lost track of that have moved away mm -hmm. to different places are able to actually join us from all over the country. Oh, and, yes. That's you know, wonderful. old friends and, and things in that context has been has been nice as well and to provide support to each other. Um, I am curious a little bit about the other that one of the other hats that you wear, and that's your work with the Developmental Disability Council. And maybe you could start with a big broad view. I think most folks listening probably they, they kind of understand what a university center for excellence is and hopefully have a little bit of an understanding of DD councils, but maybe there's someone that doesn't know what a DD council is, like what's their mission. Can you talk mm -hmm. broadly and then maybe more specifically what you do there? Absolutely. Um, so uh, the same uh, federal legislation that created USEDS, the Developmental Disabilities Act, also created uh, state councils on developmental disabilities. So every U.S. state and territory has a DD council. Uh, the vast majority of councils are connected to um, state government, though a couple I think are um, more independent. But our role is really to bring the voice of people with disabilities and families um, to the policymakers who are running the programs and, and creating the policies that impact people's lives. So um, I think councils are, are a really unique body in that way. We, um, on our council, we have not only citizens with all types of disabilities all across the lifespan and family members of folks with all different types of disabilities, but um, the, the leaders at all of the state agencies um, who have programs that impact the lives of people with disabilities. And so it's this place where policymakers and the disability community can come together and talk about um, what's working and what's not working, what are the gaps and the barriers, um, what what policy change is needed to really make a difference in people's lives. Um, so we do, um, we do a lot of uh, leadership and advocacy skills training. Um, many, many councils, uh, including Tennessee, run a partners in policymaking training, which is an intensive um, 
leadership development and advocacy um, program uh, for adults with disabilities and family members, um, really aimed at kind of developing this grassroots movement of trained advocates who know how the service system works and, and know what they need to do in their communities to make positive change happen. Um, we do a lot around public policy advocacy um, and helping families understand um, you know, what, what they need uh, in order to live their best lives and to support their loved ones with disabilities. So um, I, my role at the Tennessee DD Council uh, is to uh, is in the field of communications, which if you remember, I said I studied social work and sociology, so some of it's been making it up as I go along. Um, no, but uh, after starting at the council, um, this, this position uh, had been created to really focus on getting um, people with disabilities and families um, the information that they need to learn about how different programs work, how to advocate effectively, um, about the council and who we are and how we can we can help them um, and I, I really developed a passion for um, for plain language and helping simplify what is such a complex um, system and and to help break down really um, you know confusing and, and complicated topics hopefully in a way that really reaches people and and helps them feel more confident in um, navigating uh, the, the service system. Yeah, and that's such an important piece that we're really trying to focus our efforts around is making sure that the information is is available directly to the individual that experiences the developmental disability and mental health issue, not having everything be written in such a way that they have to rely on others completely to understand what might be being said. So uh, I definitely appreciate that. I also appreciate the idea, you know, that is a big part of social work in, in many ways is, is making up things as you <laughs> <That's> <laughs> <a good> skill. <laughs> yeah. and, and I'll just say from a from a personal perspective it's been so interesting to have my brother Evan enter the adult service system um, you know he was he was um, added to the Medicaid waiver I guess three or four years ago and began receiving, you know, these, these disability support services I had spent several years kind of trying to become more fluent in and learn about and, you know, hearing the top policymakers in our state talk about the very best way that they're supposed to be operating. And it's been really eye-opening to then see at the ground level um, from a family member perspective, uh, where where those gaps are in communicating to families and what um, you know my mom and dad and I have had to try to figure out for ourselves or and where we've you know run around in circles because no one agency seems to have the answer and um, I think I think that's the powerful part of of having um, adults with disabilities and family members with lived experience of the disability world in um, in agencies like you said and councils, we can um, bring that that real life perspective of you know we can talk all day long about how things should be happening, but until you're on the on the front lines or going through it, you may not know where those where those gaps are. Yeah, and I think this kind of underscores the importance of 
more people understanding that there is something like sibling leadership network and and sib shops and things like that because a lot of people are familiar with you that's particularly in, in this field or with the the dd councils but not not as many are familiar with siblings and the sibling leadership network and all of those things that are going on and a lot of us end up a lot of siblings end up actually working in this field in one way or the other whether we, we go into special education to be teachers or occupational therapists or physical therapists or because so much of our experience was watching our families interact with these different uh, service providers and agencies that we develop a real strong kind of sense of oh this could this could work better or mm -hmm. I, I love this particular teacher that my sibling had and I want to be like that teacher. So there's that, that component of it. But, you know, it, it, that's such an interesting thing to, to maybe amplify the importance of including siblings in these conversations. And you did say earlier, it, it is so wonderful that we're, we're hearing more and more directly from the individuals with the lived experience. And I think we also need to amplify the voice of siblings who, who play a really important role in this transition from maybe parents being the primary advocate uh, to the individual learning to be their own advocate and then maybe still needing some support from somebody that really cares deeply about them and has their best interest at heart in supportive decision-making and things like that. And um, so I appreciate that conversation. I, I do, you know, I started on some Medicaid work incentive initiatives back in the day and there is kind of a disconnect between how you know the system's supposed to work and then what your sibling actually experiences. And, and that can be very frustrating to be like, no, I know that these things exist. And I'm sorry, <laughs> that, the, I'm sorry that the, the person you, you talk to at the office doesn't yet know exactly. about that. But um, so yeah, it's, it's an interesting experience and it's, it's always lovely to talk to another sibling and could just kind of automatically have an understanding of, oh yeah, I, I get that. Yes, <laughs> been, been there, done that. I speak your language, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's the importance of, um, hopefully folks listening will check out this Living Leadership Network. I do recall a conference with uh, a lot of siblings and a lot of folks that were involved in that conference were actually working on their PhD programs. They were all doing their dissertation on sibling issues and I was just starting a doctoral program and thinking I would do the same. Life took me in a slightly different direction as far as what I got involved with and, and life got busy. But that's where I first became exposed to, oh my gosh, there's a whole kind of core group of adult siblings now that I can connect to and get support from. And it was just, it was exciting and it was also a relief to Absolutely. feel like, oh, other people get some of the joys and sorrows that being in this particular role um, is because there are some interesting impacts on your own mental well-being when you know you have a sibling that does require a tremendous amount of the family's resources either in time or, or, or money that does play a role in your growing up experience. And Absolutely and, and not even just growing up but I mean for, for siblings who are going to need support throughout their lives. Um, yeah I mean for, for me in particular, um, I, I would say the, the greatest stressor in terms of, of my own um, emotional well-being and mental health is just kind of to revisit that sandwich generation notion, you know, throughout all of my young adulthood, um, up until now, I remain really anxious about, you know, what, what that phase of my life 
will be like. I'm not there yet. Um, I'm recently married, but my partner and I do plan to have kids and, and just thinking about, will I have Will I have enough time and emotional capacity and energy to not only be a good a good wife, a good employee, a good uh, mom, a good daughter, and the fiercest advocate that I can be for Evan? Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I I think it um, again underscores the value of that peer support opportunity for for folks who will understand where you're coming from. Yeah, absolutely. And I have I have two other siblings beyond my um, sister that has developmental disabilities. And I think it's been in the last five or so years that we've all recognized, oh, mom and dad are no longer able to take the lead on these things. And there is still a level of support that's needed to, to help my sister be safe and navigate some of the complexities of her world. And and so you have to have these conversations about, hey, I'm running at capacity with the issues going on with my own family, with my own kids and everything. I can't step into this right now. Can Who can? And it does become very complicated in communication and support from other siblings, whether they're in the same family or outside, is really critical uh, because it can feel very overwhelming and, and very quickly. And, and kind of sometimes out of the blue, you'll be taking your kids to soccer practice one day and all of a sudden there's a phone call and there's been a social security overpayment or there's been a glitch with the Medicaid paperwork and, mm -hmm. and or the housing subsidies not there and they're short on rent. And it's like, well, I thought we'd figure that all out. And now it's- <laughs> Didn't we solve this problem two weeks ago? I thought, yes, uh, <laughs> always. Or, or there's been a, you know, a, a mental health, behavioral health crisis and somebody needs to come to the house right now and help de-escalate things or yeah. um, I'll, I'll, I'll mention um, you know without without speaking for uh, either of my brothers but my, my brother Brendan um, Evans twin who does not uh, have a disability um, he also ended up in the in the helping profession social work field he actually works um, in, in an, a rehab facility an aging uh, uh, facility um, doing kind of that end of things and couldn't be less interested in the whole disability policy advocacy stuff that uh, both my parents and I are um, working in. But um, he has a really different perspective on, um, on his sibling relationship um, as Evan's twin than I do as the older sister who always kind of felt the um, the the future caregiving burden as kind of my primary um impact of of evan's disability he you know grew up in the same grade and all of his friends knew evan and and that relationship just in, ended up being so so different um and and the lasting impacts of you know living through um a really tough time in evan's later um, teen years where there were lots of meltdowns and and behavioral um, challenges, mental health challenges um, that I was already out of the house for. I was already, you know, living on my own and in college, but but Brendan was right there. And so I think um, I think it's something I think it's important for professionals um, who have a role in possibly bringing siblings to the table to to really understand the the nuances of the different um, sibling relationships, not 
not everyone ends up being, you know, super pumped about, <laughs> you know, learning the service system and um, being at every IEP meeting or service planning meeting and wanting to be involved every step of the way um, can have a, a really different impact, kind of depending on age and, and family dynamics. Absolutely. And I'm just thinking in my own experience, you know, sibling, uh, you know, kind of sibling order in the family and, and all of the, in, the interplay between different dynamics. And, and, you know, and for my own lived experience, I won't talk for my, my sister or brother who are also in this role, but for me, there's been, there's been times when I've kind of felt a little bit hypocritical because I do this work in the field, right? And it's because it's a little bit safer distance to work on systems change versus deal directly sometimes with my siblings immediate crisis. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> you know, and recognizing the, the tension there about, I do this work to hopefully improve things for my sister and others, and yet I can't always go into the burning house to, to deal with the immediate issue. And I, and I do end up leaving that to other professionals and, and, and just kind of have to let go of having to be the one and just say there's other people that can address this and they're not family but they're trained professionals and I'm gonna have to let go of that and so I don't know if that's ever been your experience but that's a big issue um, that's come and gone for me yeah I mean in in my job every day I am in some form or fashion talking about or advocating for the employment of people with any and every type of disability and we have yet to really, as a, as a family and, and a team of people supporting Evan, figure out what on earth that looks like. I mean, it feels kind of like we're just, um, you know, our wheels are spinning sometimes for the past, you know, since he left high school. Um, and I've, I've had to kind of come to terms with, like, you know, I can't go and be Evan's customized employment job developer <laughs> like I'm his sister that's not my role I can I can be a sister and and advocate when when there are opportunities to and and encourage and provide ideas and and brainstorming but I I just don't have the capacity I have to live my own life too um can't go in and, and solve every problem which is hard <laughs> yeah that is that's a uh such an interesting place and that does play into to the mental health issues for everybody involved and, and there's a recognition of if i if i work beyond my capacity uh i do a poor job interacting with my sister in a way that is unskillful and makes things actually sometimes can make it worse so knowing that hey i'm not in a place where i have the capacity right now and i i can try to get other people to step in that's better for everybody's mental well-being long term absolutely so i appreciate that i, I kind of want to use this as an opportunity now to you know speaking of things coming up COVID pandemic and and having siblings that you worry about and and how are they coping with these changes that they may or may not understand fully I know that's kind of the the gist of the psychology today article but i wonder if you could just kind of give us a little rundown of um, well, a couple of things. How is the DD Council or TABS kind of responding to this, to the folks in Tennessee? And anything else you want to say about how we better support individuals with developmental disabilities kind of navigate the current landscape? 
Absolutely. Um, so I'll say the the two, both from kind of a, a national disability policy landscape and um, in terms of what the council focused on, kind of right out of the gate, the, the big um, kind of fires to be put out, I guess, um, that, that we were really concerned about was the concept of whether or not um, in, in hospital shortages, um, if people, our loved ones with, with disabilities might um, suffer negative consequences, might be put at the back of the line. There were several states that, including Tennessee, that had policies on the book um, that, or, or guidelines that seemed to suggest that having different types of disability support needs or accommodation needs or diagnoses might um, might really suggest that that they would um, experience disc discrimination in triage protocols and um, so that's been a, a huge um, national disability advocacy push and um, Tennessee's um, developmental disabilities network which includes the council and the USEDS um, and our protection and advocacy agency, um, Disability Rights Tennessee and the ARC, several, um, several agencies having conversations with state policymakers about um, ensuring that, that disability dis discrimination doesn't happen in those instances. Another huge issue has been um, with, with all hospitals pretty much um, enacting no visitor policies. Um, that's a huge concern for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities who um, need support from a uh, direct support professional or a family member um, in order to have their daily needs met or their communication needs met. Um, that certainly was kind of one of my number one fears, um, given that Evan, um, you know, is exposed to several different professionals, every DSPs every day. Um, you know, he's luckily enough, unlike a lot of um, siblings of folks with disabilities, he's young and healthy pretty much, but um, if he were to ever have to be hospitalized, his communication barriers would be such that, um, you know, I, I would fear that it would end up in, you know, him being restrained or, or sedated um, if a family member or support professional weren't allowed to be there with him. So that's a bit, that's been a big issue um, on the council's plate. And actually, um, we just uh, this week got to share that um, our developmental disabilities um, agency and the Department of Health issued guidance instructing hospitals that uh, if patients with intellectual and developmental disabilities need to be hospitalized, that their um, need for a support person to, to be admitted with them um, was a priority. So that's that's been a big relief. Um, and then um, beyond that, yeah, I mean, I think um, I've heard from the siblings here uh, in Tennessee through TABS and through um, our council members that folks are just really struggling with, as we all are, um, struggling with understanding what this disruption to our daily lives um, is going to mean and how long it will last and, um, you know, how to, to stay healthy and, and uh, sane and safe um, with, with all of the um, protections still. Uh, 
I lost that. Sorry, I lost that. You're good. You're good. I, I, I wanted to follow up on these recommendations. Is that something that we that we could post or the other other people that are trying to address the same issue in their state might be able to use as an example? Is that something we could get a hold of? Absolutely. Um, and I'll, so I'll mention um, a lot of states are are tackling this at the state policy level. Um, some states have gotten um, guidance from their governors or attorney generals directing hospitals to, to take that same approach of, of allowing um, support people to accompany someone with a disability if needed. Um, and a few states protection and advocacy organizations or PNAs have sued um, or, or filed complaints with the uh, US Office of Civil Rights um, because, I mean, I don't know how sad to get, the heartbreaking reality is that, that folks with intellectual and developmental dis disabilities are, are dying alone in the hospital without being able to communicate with, with their family um, because the hospital staff doesn't understand the right ways to support them in communicating remotely. Um, so this is a really, a really troubling issue that, um, yeah, lots of states are, are working really hard on, but I would be happy to share um, Tennessee's new guidance. Yeah, and then I appreciate you. It, it is very, um, there's, there's certainly um, a very somber component to this, right? And we can talk about system change and all these other things, which are really critically important. And in the meantime, there are individuals that we love and care about that are dying um, in, under really um, difficult circumstances as far as being alone. And we've done a series of interviews uh, in the last little while with some folks with lived experience and uh, my good friend, Justin, who is a Best Buddies coordinator and, and that's his passion and his life. Uh, he has been attending a lot of different funerals uh, and, and using his phone to broadcast them to other people that care about these folks. And, you know, just talking to him, like the, the, the reality of that is just, it just takes a minute to even process uh, what that experience is, is like for him and, the, and these other families. And so, uh, yeah, it's certainly a, an issue that has all kinds of components, but at the very heart of it is about loved ones uh, that we care deeply about experiencing really difficult circumstances. So certainly would refer folks to the article that we'll post from Psychology Today where you talk a little bit more about this. Would love to have the resources you're talking about to share with other people and um, just really appreciate your time and, and all that you're doing and to, to have a chance to just talk to you and, and get to know a little bit about what you're doing has been really delightful. I, I use that word a lot when I talk to your mom. It's just so delightful to talk um, to folks that are so passionate about what they're doing and, and are um, just putting their heart and soul into this work. And so I, I really am grateful for the chance to talk to you about that. I, I do want to give you a chance. If there's anything that you really thought you wanted to say today that we haven't talked about, this would be a great time to have you just kind of share any of those thoughts. So something I'm, I'm really passionate about um, letting professionals in the disability world know is the power of peer support um, for um, connecting people with disability to self-advocacy groups, connecting uh, siblings to sibling support groups and parents to parent support groups. I think there is so much about the disability experience and the experience of family members that, um, that 
state programs, you know, are just not cut out to address that special education or voc rehab or Medicaid waiver professionals um, aren't going to aren't even really set up or equipped to meet those kind of interpersonal day to day mental health, emotional well being needs of people with disabilities and families that um, that there is such value and power in connecting um, people to those resources, not just in a moment of crisis, but the second that you have an interaction with a person with a disability or family, make sure that they know um, about the resources in their community where they can find su um, support from people who are on a similar life journey. Um, and I, I also always <coughs> enjoy bringing or mentioning um, when talking about sibling issues. Um, I think something important to remember is that siblings often bring a really different perspective to um, to the table in terms of the strengths and skills and gifts and challenges um, that a person with a disability might face. You know, we're um, again kind of that peer relationship versus a parent-child relationship, sometimes we as brothers and sisters can see um, abilities in our brother or sister that mom and dad may not have considered or have been nervous to kind of push them or, you know, the, the whole dignity of risk thing. Um, I've always been a whole lot more, <laughs> more willing to uh, challenge Evan and say, uh, no, he, he can make his own snack. I don't need to make a snack for, you know, an 18 year old. <laughs> I may have to give different instructions, but, um, you know, to, to really kind of push for those independent living skills. I think it's a really just a valuable perspective to have that, um, that sibling point of view at the table if there are brothers and sisters in the picture um, willing to be there. You know, of course, not all siblings are, are interested in, in being super involved, but um, if there are siblings in, in someone's life and you're supporting someone with a disability and trying to figure out what, what a good life, what a good future will look like, I really think um, that, that brothers and sisters bring an invaluable perspective that you're not going to get if you only have professionals and parents at the table. I think that's, uh, those are lovely points uh, to kind of wrap this up with. So I really appreciate you taking the time, Emma, and, and those kind of final thoughts that kind of bring it all back to some of the key points. Uh, so yeah, thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Absolutely. I'm, I'm so glad to have been invited and to have had this conversation with a fellow sibling. Thank you for listening to the MHDD Crossroads podcast. Make sure to like, subscribe, and share this podcast wherever you get your episodes. Also, make sure to follow us on social media at MHDD Center or visit our website for more resources at mhddcenter.org. Until next time, thank you.